Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie Weissman, the editor in chief of Modern Retail. And this week, we have Nadia Bujarwa, the co founder and CEO of DNCO. DNCO is a plus size apparel company. I'm excited to go into sort of the nitty gritty of apparel. Um, it's been around since 2015, I'm pretty sure. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of different sort of trends, both marketing-wise and apparel-wise over the years. I want to dig into all of that. And then there are some fun collaborations and partnerships you guys have done. So I want to talk about it all. But Nadia, how are you? Good. Kale, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. So first, why don't you tell me a little about yourself, sort of how did Dia come about? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm an unlikely entrepreneur and certainly an unlikely retail executive. Um, I started my career on Wall Street here in New York and actually really enjoyed that. Um, I, um, you know, I probably would have stayed, um, in that industry if it weren't for this problem in particular, because the other thing that I am is a plus size woman. Um, and I always have been, but in reality, you know, I never really thought about those personal experiences, anything other than experiences. Honestly, I had shame around, like, it wasn't like I went around talking to people about how hard it was for me to find clothing in my size. I, preferred to pretend that it was easy for me to find stylish clothing and you know that especially because style and fashion were very important to me that it was something that came as easily to me as it did to other people but you know the hard reality is that that's not the case I've been in plus size clothing probably since I was 14 years old Um, and so you know very excited to talk about how much the industry has changed in the last you know six years that we've been building Dia but Really, if you kind of extend the the time horizon on that, it's really fascinating to think about how far things have come since the early 2000s, which were a dismal time for plus size fashion. Um, but anyways, I went to business school um, almost 10 years ago now and really very serendipitously ended up reading an article that the New York Times published in the fall of 2012 about the rise of these highly unusual, never before seen plus size style influencers in the form of web bloggers um, and how, you know, in some ways like the gatekeepers of fashion were changing. And this was a truly, truly, truly just like a, you know, kind of a fascinating idea to me. And it was the first time that I really thought about what the plus size market looked like outside of my own personal experiences and, um, you know, ended up learning that it was a fascinating market. It, It continues to be right. I think that uh, the joy of building Dia certainly has been personal in many ways because it is a product that ultimately um, I envisioned for myself. But I think intellectually, too, it's just been a fascinating puzzle because the reality of the plus size market, which really hasn't changed at the macro level that much in the last, um, you know, let's say five to seven years, is that plus size women, um, which, you know, is, is a is a term that can mean different things. We use it to... Um, define women who wear the sizes that we cater to, which is a size beginning at a size 10 and up to a size 32, uh, make up about 70% of the U.S. female adult population, seven zero. So truly seven in 10 women in the U.S. are wearing these sizes. There's a very outdated um, statistic that the average American woman wears a size 14. I think that that was probably true in 1980. Today, the average American woman wears between a size 16 and 18. Um, And those demographic shifts have really cemented. Um, and, you know, I think are the reality of the market that we operate in, to do, in today. Um, and that's true really for most developed countries around the world. 
On the flip side of that, if you look at you know what the supply side of the equation is doing, it is remarkably, remarkably anemic. Um, about less than 20% of apparel dollars that are spent in the U.S. each year are spent in those sizes. Um, and, you know, like at, at the end of the day, the key question in plus size apparel is, is it a supply problem or a demand problem? And having been on the demand side my entire life, we came into this with the firm belief that demand is not the problem, that there was something wrong on the supply side. And, you know, I'd say that one summary of our experience in the last six years is really refining our understanding of exactly what's happening on the supply side that prevents this market from really, you know, coming to life in the way that we believe it should. If you actually extrapolate those numbers, we believe that inclusive fashion is the largest opportunity in retail today. Plus size women spend about $21 billion a year. And if she um, could spend at parity, what women in smaller sizes are spending on apparel, that's like an incremental 80 to a billion, 80 to a hundred billion dollars a year in spend um, that's really just about bringing this woman to parity. And so when we think about, you know, what the ultimate success for us looks like, we dream very big and really think about bringing that market, um, you know, kind of to its full potential, which I, I genuinely don't think that there are any other opportunities in retail that um, have that much latent demand. It seems like like plus size clothing has been something that I feel like the fashion industry has talked about for years, but there's yet to be like a full, I feel like there are more brands like yours that are coming out and, and showing it, but it has yet to hit like full, I guess, like full speed ahead in the way that it should, given the the clear like market for it. Can you just talk a little bit about like the initial launch plan? Like was your idea with Dia, was it about sort of branding and marketing and sort of explaining exactly what the products were? Was it about sort of how did you go about sort of trying to shift that narrative? Yeah, totally. So the philosophy that we've always taken is that what is fundamentally broken in plus size apparel is her shopping experience. And so figuring out what does the experience need to be to unlock the next set of positive, joyful shopping experiences for this customer and how do we build a business around that? And so when we started in 2015, we did extensive, extensive, um, you know, I guess in retrospect, we can call it like you know, customer research. But in reality, we were just like working with women across the country. Lydia and I started, my co-founder Lydia, and I started the business by personally shopping for about a thousand women across the country just to see what did they want and where could they find it. Um, And the really remarkable, there are two really kind of key insights that came out of that. One was how remarkably consistent the experience was regardless of what the who the woman was, what she did, and what her style preferences were, i.e. like the option set was just very small. Um, so to give you an example there, whether we were shopping for a kindergarten teacher in Nashville or a retired physician in Omaha, she was basically shopping in the same places. And it was, you know, more a reflection of what was available than what she preferred. So that was the first insight. The second insight was that in reality, there were many more options than people knew about. There was a sense that, you know, there were more brands. Like we would hear all the time, oh, wow, like that brand is available in my size. I never knew that. And so it seemed like the first most important thing to do was to help better distribute what product was actually available so that those women could have preferences that were actually met in the shopping experience. So we started really by scaling that styling service, a personal shopping service um, through third-party brands. 
and helping to bring her the best of what was available um, regard, without having to have her do all the research, right? Um, and that scaled remarkably quickly and very well, I think, really by virtue of the fact that that insight was correct, that there was a lot more available to her than she realized. But, you know, we kind of scaled into the next challenge, which is at some point, there wasn't enough, right? Like the this, the entire option set of brands that had legitimate apparel offerings above a size, you know, 16 or 18 was very small. Brands at that moment in time were not excited to be jumping into the inclusive fashion world. Um, and so we started building brands ourselves. We had at that point collected two or three years of data on exactly what she was looking for that we couldn't find. And we used that to launch what ended up being a 10 brand um, portfolio that are designed and manufactured at Dia really to fit the white spaces that we saw on the market um, for that customer. And those brands continue to drive the majority of our revenue today and are a huge part of what we do. The major change that happened, though, in the subsequent years, I'd say really starting towards the end of 2018 and kind of peaking in, you know, the end of 2019 um, is the incredible influx of brands into the inclusive sizing world. Um, so brands truly woke up to the, not only the opportunity, but I think the social imperative for inclusivity um, and how important it was for them to be able to really have an offering um, for the average woman that they could serve. Um, and so we just saw really dozens and dozens of brands enter the space um, you know, there's a, the interlude of COVID in between that time. But I think the net of where that influx of brands has really landed is that brands know and believe more than ever that there's an opportunity in, in plus and that it's imperative for their brands to be able to stand for the inclusivity that, you know, they think is right, but it's incredibly, incredibly hard for them to serve this customer across all the dimensions of service that are required on their own. And so we're in a moment now of consolidating supply, which is the role that DIA plays today, um, and actually bringing the best brands that are available um, under one roof and into one experience where our customers can truly shop in a single basket experience, brands from Madewell and Third Love and M.M. Lafleur and um, Cosa Bella and all kinds of brands that actually are available in her size, um, but we can kind of simplify for her that experience. And Honestly, well, it's been fairly full circle. We're back to really being, you know, that kind of guide to her across the industry of saying, hey, you may not even know it, but this brand actually has um, really great product in your size and helping her access that in a really successful way. Wow. So um, when, when you initially were doing the personal selling, you were doing it for a thousand women. And it seems like you you noticed that there were similar problems across a broad swath of different women. Did you, did that make you sort of figure out like exactly what, who the target was? Is it like an, an upwardly mobile urbanite? Are you trying to reach everyone sort of, how do you say, cause I feel like, the, you know, like in inclusivity represents all different people, many different socioeconomic backgrounds. So how do you, how do you sort of fit within those parameters so that it's both broad, but also still speaking to directly to who you want to speak to? Yeah, totally. So we have always been a multi-branded retailer and a multi-category retailer. And so our audience is broad, right? Within that, we can serve different price points. We can serve different aesthetics because, you know, we're not a 
classical direct-to-consumer brand that has a small set of SKUs that are very targeted towards one customer. Um, what we have found over the course of the last six years is that the shared experience in shopping in larger sizes is actually very, very strong, regardless of what aesthetic or price point you may be looking for. And therefore, if we can fix the experience for her, we can deliver on different aesthetics and price points successfully on our platform to a wider audience of women. Um, and we do that today, right? So if you want to you know, invest in a beautiful leather jacket, you can buy that idea. Or if you're looking for something at a lower price point, that's also available because we work with brands that fill those gaps um, across the marketplace. So we also find that the reality is that um, women exhibit a wide variety of shopping behaviors. It is very, very common to have our customers shop across the aesthetic categories that we would put on the assortment and across the price point, um, you know, kind of brackets as you know, high-low shopping, I think, is something that's here to stay. And so um, we do ultimately end up having a very broad um, assortment. Um, and our goal is really to be able to broaden that assortment as much as is humanly possible so that she can have choice. Um, you know, if I had to summarize, the, the most common thing that you hear from a plus-size woman is, I hate shopping. And if you ask her, why do you hate shopping? The reality is that it feels very constrained. It feels very limited and it ultimately feels like an experience that requires her to settle in some way for what's available versus what she wants. And so as we think about really giving her choice um, and, you know, kind of the freedom to have options and what she's shopping for, broader assortments are, are the key. And as a result, lets us speak to a broad audience of women. Got it. And so can you talk to me about sort of when when do you think it became like you say that, you know, now your, your focus is on making it so that they're a broad assortment and working with as many brands as possible. When did that sort of hit fever pitch with brands realizing that that they should be pl targeting this market more? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was really in 2018. If you think back on the the history, the modern history of the plus size market, there's this watershed moment in 2016 when Ashley Graham, who is now, you know, much more of a household name, was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And that was really like a tipping point when this conversation that I think had otherwise been in the shadows, really, around body positivity and inclusivity came into the mainstream. And from that point forward, my guess is that most plus size strategies began in 2016 and actually came to market in 2018. Um, when you really started to see all the mainstream retailers announce lines and plus expansions of lines, et cetera, et cetera. And then um, I think that that really peaked at the end of 2019. I think that it would have continued longer if it weren't for COVID. COVID was an unfortunate reality for the plus size market because in each of those cases, plus was, you know, the last strategy that someone had been trying probably had the least proof points. And therefore when the going got tough, it was the first thing to get cut. And we saw, you know, a lot of retreating um, in plus size businesses in 2020 overall, you know, large brands like Loft very publicly had to shut down their plus size business. Others did it more quietly, but, you know, really it was people were kind of retrenching and doubling down on the core. And so plus ended up getting um, much less investment during that time. So it, it really peaked at the end of 2019, I would say. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Talk to me then about what you specifically did in 2020. If you're seeing more brands retreating, what are what was your response overall? So if you if you see what 
the reason why brands were retreating. What we hear more, what we hear consistently from from brands is that we want to be in the space. We want to serve this customer. It's important to our brand. You know, from a values alignment perspective, it's critical to who we are. However, there are these massive areas of investment that are required of us as a brand. And when you put them all together, it's just not feasible, right? So brands need to do the product development work to get fit right. Not trivial and plus. Fit is really hard. They need to actually hold the inventory. The inventory holding costs very large. And then you get into the last part of it, which is actually driving awareness with this customer, because this is the customer who very explicitly believes that your brand does not have her size. And so what we observe is a lot of like ad blindness, for example, where you know a brand can say, hey, we're here, we're here, we're here, and this customer is just not going to notice it because she expects it to not be for her. Um, and so we believe, and I think most brands agree, that the product development and the inventory holding costs are the cost of being in business with this customer, right? Like if the product is not good, you shouldn't be here. We can help a lot with the marketing and distribution, though, because what we can do is really consolidate all those offerings in a way that makes it easy to serve. We have a large community of plus size women on the platform, and we can connect those dots in a way that becomes very cost effective. And so a lot of the conversations that we were having with brands in 2020 was saying, hey, before you throw in the towel, let us help, right? You have great product. We hear great reviews on the actual assortment that you've built. I know that it is incredibly difficult to actually distribute that product successfully, we can help with that. Um, and that's worked really well. And, you know, the thing that I think is really important is that it is really understandable why brands have a hard time doing this, right? Like if you think about the reality of any brand that has a retail, like a footprint, right? Like an actual store for them to put plus size products in their store by definition displaces other product in the store that probably has higher sales efficiency, and it becomes very hard for them to make this trade, for them to decide, you know, does the incremental dollar of open to buy go towards a plus size product or a straight size product? The plus size customer always loses in that trade. And it becomes very hard for any of these businesses to actually gather momentum in this plus offering in a way that allows them to continue to invest in it. And so we've been able to bridge that gap for folks because we can, you know, kind of bring the community to the product help with those sales and let the brand focus on product development and the integrity of the fit and the aesthetics, which is what they should be the best at, and let us really build the momentum and kind of the visibility um, on the customer side, which is what we're best at. So like, can you go a little bit more into that? Because you mentioned the ad blindness and that makes a lot of sense. And I never thought of it quite that way that, of course, if you think no one is going to cater to you, even if it says on the ad, I'm catering to you, you're, you're just not going to see that. I know that Dia over the years has you know done a lot of different marketing things. I was doing some research and I saw, I think, a 2017 article um, from our public sister publication, Glossy, about um, you doing Facebook Lives, I'm pretty sure is what you guys were doing then and trying to do, get, get people's eyes with that. Sort of what, what are you doing now? Have you found that there is a way to sort of overcome that ad blindness on the marketing side? Or is it just that you've established a name for yourself so people know who you are and that in and of itself is good marketing? So I think that the advantage that we've always had is that she is the only customer we cater to. And so we don't experience the ad blindness because we get the benefit of specialization, right? And so I think the challenge is for, you know, a mainstream brand and really name any brand and they fall into this category that has for decades not served this customer and then all of a sudden launches 
a line that goes into plus sizes and then they're surprised why there aren't, you know, customers banging down their door to buy the product. And it's because they don't think that it's there. Right. And so there's, that's the challenge is really much more when this is not the the core customer for you and therefore not the brand that you've established over the course of decades. And you're trying to change that versus for us, she's the only customer we've ever served. So all the brand awareness, all the community that we've built over the last six years has been singularly focused on on this woman. Got it. Are you still doing things like Facebook Live or TikTok or anything like that to try and grow the community or sort of what have you been playing around with? We do. Um, you know, it feels like the Instagram Live and the Facebook Live airwaves got so flooded in 2020 that it became much, much less effective versus when we were, you know, kind of early to that boat in 2017 and 2018. Um, we're spending much more time on TikTok these days. I think that what we're seeing in terms of the power of organic content on TikTok is something that we haven't seen on any of these channels in a long time. We have a very, very large uh, brand ambassador program, um, hundreds of women who, for the most part, are you know what we would classify as micro-influencers, um, who have just these authentic followings across many platforms, but usually TikTok, um, and, you know, kind of figuring out how to let authentic content be created for our brand across these platforms um, through things like our brand ambassador program and certainly our own first party content as well has been really important. But I'd say TikTok is, you know, a very, very exciting place for brands, especially for um, organic reach. Um, And any digital brand that's come up in the last 10 years knows that, you know, organic reach across social channels became a mythical thing of the past, um, probably in 2018, 2019. And, and now is actually possible again. So I'd say that a lot of a lot of that is is really thanks to TikTok. Yeah, I think TikTok is a is a specifically exciting platform, just because by definition, the content is unvarnished. And so I imagine or I don't know if unvarnished is the right way of saying it, but pretty much like it seems more realer than uh, than what we've seen over the last few years on Instagram. And so but can you talk about just sort of that or like your your ambassador program? How is it that you're choosing which ambassadors to work with? Do you have is it like a self serve sign up program? Or are you seeking them out? What are the what's the sort of rubric that you think works best for the DIA customer for, for who they're speaking to? Yeah, so it's both. Um, we find that it's interesting, right? Because we've done a lot of influencer work over the last six years. And we find that there are, you know, like the mega, mega influencers that are really corporations in and of themselves. And then there's like the middle, which is like a very, uh, in some ways, hard place to be because from a brand's perspective, the ROI on some of those like mid-range influencers, I think, can be harder to to really e- evaluate. Where we find the best um, kind of reflection of our brand, because we have always been a community-based brand, is really in, in building out a long-tail program with smaller um, influencers. So these are women that have between five and 50,000 followers across platforms. And the net result of that is that the authenticity that you get with these women and their followers is something that is nearly impossible um, to find with some of the larger accounts. Um, and there are really in some ways like the magic of these social platforms is how niche the communities are able to be in who they follow and therefore what they love. And so we're able to get really authentic reviews and content and, you know, product features from these women who have avid followers in their niche communities in a way that's working really well. Um, so we work 
you know, probably with over 500 um, brand ambassadors a month. Um, And, you know, TikTok is interesting, for example, because you really don't know out of the gate what's going to hit on TikTok. And when you have that many pieces of content being created, inevitably there are hits every month, right? Inevitably something goes viral and gets a couple million views. And then you really get the benefit of each of these women creating content authentically for their communities and seeing what really works um, in a way that I think is is hard. TikTok is a very special platform because if you think about the content that you consume on TikTok, unlike any other content, it's primarily from people you don't know, right? Versus like Instagram and Facebook are just so dominated by your feed that at the end of the day, you're you're not really discovering that much. And TikTok is, has been such a great discovery platform for us. Do you find, are you finding that the, co- like the commerce and transactions capability or not capabilities, but potential of TikTok is increasing? I feel like that's always been, or maybe it was a year ago and now it's a little bit less, but you know, Instagram, you are more likely to actually g- get a conversion. TikTok, it was a little hairier. Do you think that that's still the case? I think that it is still the case, even though TikTok, I think is doing great work to really expand their commerce tooling. But at the end of the day, I think it's a mistake to to really measure some of these programs on commerce metrics. I think that these these programs are really brand awareness programs. Um, and if you start measuring too far down the funnel, I think you end up giving up on things that are actually remarkably powerful if you just measure them against the, the right metric. And we've been very clear um, in our, you know, in our organic social efforts are about building community and driving brand awareness. Eventually, that will lead to more traffic. Eventually, that will lead to more sales. But I think if you if you go too far down the funnel, you end up losing um, what are actually like very large opportunities to drive you know community building and awareness um, that take time. So you gotta gotta give those things the time to really take root. Can you talk a little about sort of the brand partnership side of things? I know that you've had a few recently. Sort of, are you finding that there's been an uptick again after the 2020 doom and gloom? What What are you seeing, and sort of how are you going about curating which brands you're working with and what works be- best for the Dia customer? Yeah, absolutely. So our certainly our pace of onboarding brands onto the platform and brand partnerships has picked up meaningfully, and really I think that that is a reflection of how many brands actually have product and plus sizes today. Um, so, you know, a recent one that we launched was with Madewell and Madewell is a really good, really good example of a brand that has done the hard work to really get great product for the plus size customer. I think that, you know, in in previous iterations of the assortment, there were fit challenges and there were other things that they really invested wholeheartedly in getting right. Um, but then they, they wanted to make sure that they were actually building the experience correctly and they wanted help driving awareness around the program, right? So we worked very closely with Madewell, obviously on bringing them onto our platform, which gave them a lot more plus size visibility and therefore traffic. Um, But we also did things like we did in-store training for all their sales associates um, in stores about what inclusivity in that client telling experience should look like. Um, We helped them with the product development side. We helped them with the kind of marketing and messaging side. And really, you know, at the end of the day, a huge part of these partnerships is building the assortment at DIA. But fundamentally, the value that we can add over and above that to brands is really in, in serving that ad, like advisory role in how to think about the plus size market and how to really do you know, excellently by this customer and how you serve them. So it was really kind of equal parts commerce and consulting, I'd say. 
That's so fascinating. So like that was sort of my next question, which is, you know, when you're working with uh, a brand like Madewell, which has stores and like clearly wants people to buy at their stores, but you and you you're going in and you're training their associates on how to, you know, speak about about plus size apparel. Sort of how do you, is this just more about the industry at large or is this just like how do you go about that and do you do this for every brand that you work with or a lot of the brands or is it just sort of Madewell was the right partner? It depends on what the brands need. Um, you know, we've been building expertise in this category for a long time. And so we are genuinely happy to share those learnings for brands that want to be able to serve this customer better. If you think back on the metrics that I told you at the beginning about how underserved the market is, our firm belief is that the tides need to rise pretty meaningfully here for this market to come to its full potential. And we, as one of the leaders in the category, will probably benefit the most from the rising tides, but certainly won't benefit exclusively, right? And so we've always taken a very collaborative approach to all of our brand partnerships because if more women are shopping Madewell plus sizes, more women are shopping in plus sizes. And therefore, you know, we kind of all benefit. So um, some brands are more focused on driving brand awareness. Some brands are more focused on, you know, the onsite experience. Some brands are more focused on the in-store experience. It really depends on what their objectives are, but we're, we are, I would say, very generous in our learnings and in sharing them um, with the brands that that we work with. And do you have a, a general rubric for how you choose which brands you, is it, do, do they have to, you know, not only have the, the clothing, but sort of prove other ways that, that this is, that this is an important facet of their business, or is it sort of like, as long as you, you have these sizes, we'll, we'll, we'll work with you. So first and foremost, the product has to be excellent, right? Like we will not list product idea that we don't believe is well-fitting, well-constructed product that we stand behind and are excited to share with our community. I think the next most important thing is also brand kind of like values alignment in terms of, you know, how committed is this brand to this? And I say that not because, um, or I say that not only because it's important to us, but one of the things that we've seen time and again is that brands come in and out of the space like a yo-yo, like crazy. And that's a very bad experience right? Like we are not going to invest in onboarding a brand and working with a brand. If two years from now they say, oh, this is not working. We're going to pull out. We'll try again in a couple of years. Like they have to be committed to this in order for us to be able to build, you know, kind of a long-term value proposition with them. Um, and then, you know, the, what rounds out that feedback loop is what we hear from our customers, right? So the reality though, is that like, there are so many more brands that our customer wants that I have not interacted with a brand that we haven't heard from our customers they want to shop from, right? Like the, the starting point is so low that there's so many brands from a customer perspective that we'd love to work with that it's really more, is this brand committed and is the product excellent that ends up kind of being the filters for for who we work with. Got it. Makes sense. So um, we're just about getting to out of time, but I want to ask another question or two, but what's the, what's the big plan for the year to come? We're in 2022 now. Things are picking back up in terms of more brands thinking about inclusivity. How are you focusing the business and what are your, what are you zeroing in on? So our biggest focus is this, um, you know, notion that we can really help bring the best brands to our community and our community to the best brands, right? So the fastest growing part of Dia today is a marketplace, where we work with these brands, we identify the products that will work best, and we allow them to list their products at DIA um, for our customers to be able to shop and enjoy. 
the real benefit for our customers is that over the years, we've developed these very proprietary ways of allowing people to shop. So for example, home try on, um, really letting women, like on our site, you can go today and order up to 10 items and pay only effectively a try on fee um, until you decide if you want to keep something. And these kind of mechanisms for shopping are very valuable to our customers. And once the brand's you know, it also allows more women to experience these brands in a way that's successful for them, right? So it's like a it's like a win win in terms of the shopping experience that we've built um, and serving our customers as well as possible. We are onboarding brands very very rapidly now. We've expanded the categories that we serve. Last year we added intimates, we added swim. Um, we'll continue to add to those categories um, over the course of 2020, but ultimately are are really focused on building out that selection. Um, as successfully as possible um, and in the process really bringing the best brands um, to our customers and helping those brands be successful too and this is all online only right it is would you, would you ever uh, think about opening a store or something like that I mean never say never I think as the world kind of settles over the next three to five years, we'll see what happens. But I think that the the reality of the plus size shopping experience, that the plus size shopping experience was online even before COVID in a more meaningful way than it was in other sizes. And so what we found to be more successful is actually figuring out how to bring what's good about a store to her home um, rather than ask her to go to a store, right? So our entire business is built on a home try-on experience, which effectively lets her have a fitting room at home. Um, I'd say our strongest value prop to customers is discovery because we're continuously introducing her to products and to brands she hasn't seen before, which is the other thing that stores end up doing for you. Um, and so overall, I'd say that, you know, the, the more successful experience for us has been taking the value props of stores and building it into our online experience more so than needing to build stores to really deliver that experience to her. All right. That makes sense. Nadia, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Kel. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week. Bye.